Hey, we're going to do things a little differently this episode and run the credits at the beginning. So, The Eighth Tower is a Harper's Farce production and was written by Jordan Gingrey and Ricky Teal and produced by Ricky Teal. The voice of Jeremy is John Sanders. Music is by Harper's Farce. To find out more about the creators, lore, music, and other art, go to harpersfarce.com. And be sure to find and follow us at Harper's Farce on all social media for updates and other news. A few more quick notes. Be on the lookout for a big announcement coming up with our fifth episode about future plot lines and funding. We have a lot in the works right now and are super excited to clue you in on some of them. We'll see you next week for a special mini episode. Lastly, a brief warning. The following episode contains some intense sequences. I'm just now leaving my final meeting with Adam. He had like a... One last piece to the item I received. Uh, a key or something, he said. It's small, long and round like, like a finger, but with a spiraling pattern on it like a corkscrew. With this came the last instructions from Brockett. They were simple enough. I just have to take this item and, and key into the bank and place it under my desk. And as I leave for the day, insert this key thing into it. Twist five times and leave. I'm not entirely sure what this is supposed to do. Adam seemed to hint that it was related to money, but I couldn't answer my direct questions. My best guess is it's some sort of fun siphon. You know how our credits are loaded onto our cards during allowances? Well, my theory is that this this thing will, will siphon off any of the credits sometimes that it happens. The followers have to get their funding for their carbines from somewhere, right? You know, I, I know stealing like this seems seems wrong. But really, I'm, I'm starting to think that the followers, they might be right. It's time for them to rise up, to balance them out. I, I had no idea how bad things were down the drudge before, but I've seen them. And now that I have, I just can't forget it. I know. Wait. Wait. Is that daylight? Shit! Sorry. Where are you? Oh God! Oh God!
know about them. The other man. I've known for months, I just, I, I didn't say anything. What could I have said, right? What, what could I have possibly... understand why you did it, but why didn't you tell me? Jess is with me. Talk later. Talk later. That's what you wrote. But will we? Have we, have we talked at all in the past five years? I, I could have Shit, I don't know. Why didn't you tell me that the menders weren't satisfied? That that the interest added up? Why why didn't you tell me what you had to do? What you, what you had to give for credits for the debt? I mean, aren't we a team? You and I wasn't wasn't what the union of our marks supposed to represent? Wasn't it supposed to represent we were a team? the things we haven't told each other. Think of silence as being nothing, but it's not. It's not a weightless absence. It's it's massive and it's heavy. And it's been growing larger, heavier every month, every year. That's why I started recording these damn messages. I thought I thought that maybe the silence could be broken and that it could be traversed and that we could we could talk again. I'm a fool. I'm a fucking fool. I need to stop lying to myself. Who do I even think I am? Hmm? Some idiot with a recorder pretending to gallantly save his family? <laughs> My family. I wasn't even here. You just took her. I, I, I wasn't even here. You know, you know, I started this whole thing to save Jessa, to get her medication, to, to, to free you. I knew what you were doing, and what you had to do to save her. I get that. I thought I could. I thought I could save the both of you, but. I can't. I'm broken. I've been broken. I was gone when they needed me, I was gone when you needed me, and now she's gone. And both of you are gone, and it's my fault. God, do we even go forward with this whole thing? I mean... I need some time. I need some time just to think. I just... I just need... I stopped by the den last night. 
Chuck looked worried, actually. I was surprised when he rushed from behind the bar to greet me. He didn't give a damn about me, of course. He never did. As soon as I realized why he was worried, I, I knew I didn't have to ask my questions. You haven't shown up to work in eight days. Eight days. And I haven't been able to find a trace of you anywhere else. Chuck asked me why you would do this. I told him I had no idea. He saw right through me, of course, and his worry faded into scrutiny, which faded into outright accusation. I didn't so much leave the premises as I was ejected. I guess he'd finally had enough of me. Can't really blame him. den was so quiet without you there, Etta. It wasn't just because there was no singing or laughing. It was the energy. The whole place felt hollow. Where are you, Etta? thought today that maybe, maybe you'd be waiting for me up on top of the roof. So I came here. I'm sitting here right now at dusk. It is the tenth day since you left. I, <laughs> I don't know why I feel surprised you aren't here yet. Of course you aren't here. It amazes me to think about it. We spend our whole lives in empty spaces. Our homes, the streets, the workplaces. We occupy them, use them, fill them, and then we leave them. None of our stops and thinks about what we leave behind. A part of us remains. There are bits of us, memories, names carved in stone, footprints, stay behind. The space and its emptiness and its hollow emptiness becomes a vessel holding the forgotten fragments of our old selves. This rooftop holds us, Etta. It holds the us that are paired together. The wind up here still carries your song, even if it's just an echo. We may leave a place, but not all of us leaves. Not all of you has left me. The suns have set now, and it's getting cold. You weren't coming tonight, I know, but... Uh, so good to find that bit of you that you've left here in this place. 
Good night. It's been two weeks since you left. I've been going through the motions. Waking up, going to work, leaving work, going to bed. Nothing more or less than what I need to be doing. I haven't heard from Brock or Adam lately, but that doesn't surprise me. The anointed have started moving enforcers through our levels. The tension in the air is electric. You know how before I said it was hopeful? Well, I don't think that was right. People are showing the whites of their eyes when they walk. They're looking over their shoulders more. It's not hope, it's desperation. I've done a lot of walking lately. I know it's dangerous, but I find myself walking downwards towards the drudge. Today I was on one of these walks, down to the point where Empyrean is blocked out almost entirely. I heard a sound, small and frail. It was a little girl. She coughed from her hammock, and I could have sworn it was Jessa. I ran to the hammock and I ripped the blanket off and... It wasn't Jessa. Of course. But there is still a small girl, curled in filthy rags. Her eyes were open but unseeing in a feverish prison. Her hands were clenched in tiny little fists. Her belly was sunken from the lack of food. Her whole tiny frame was shaking violently, and she kept coughing and coughing. I know the last signs of MAS. I know them all too well. She was going to die. This poor little girl, she was going to die there in the dark, and there was nothing I could do about it. I'm awake again. The fog has been lifted from my eyes. That sad little girl wasn't Jessa, but it could have been. I couldn't do anything for that little girl, but I could do something for Jessa. I will do something for Jessa. Tomorrow, I deliver the package. Tomorrow, I get the Resperaton I was promised, and then... I'll find you two, and I will give you these tapes. Maybe you'll understand, or maybe you won't. Either way, I'm not giving up on you, Etta. I am not giving up. She does not weep.
Please report to the enforcers for...